This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. What a week. We made it to Friday, and that means there's just one thing left to do. It's time to go behind the headlines to look at the week that was. Today on the Reset Podcast, it's our weekly news recap. There's a lot that happened this week, but one story dominated the others. The blockbuster indictment of former House Speaker Mike Madigan. The feds are calling it the Madigan Enterprise. Nothing more than a scheme to preserve and enhance the Speaker's finances and political power. Mike Madigan exercised this power so subtly he was known as the Velvet Hammer. Madigan denies any guilt. Former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan charged with 22 counts of federal corruption, including racketeering, bribery, and attempted extortion. As always, I've got company to help me break down the biggest local and state stories of the week. Joining us for the first time on The Recap is Rachel Hinton, reporter for the Better Government Association. Welcome to Reset, Rachel. Thanks for having me. And Dan Petrella, state government reporter at the Chicago Tribune. Welcome back, Dan. Good to be back. Thanks. All right. Let's begin, Rachel, with who was clearly at the center of the biggest news this week, and that's Mike Madigan, the former House Speaker who shaped Illinois politics for 40 years, is now public official A. So give us the easy-to-understand overview of, of what the former House Speaker is accused of here. Yeah, so on Wednesday, uh, federal officials released a long-awaited 22-count indictment that included bribery, uh, official misconduct, and legislative misconduct as well. But I would say that the big charge here that people should focus on is racketeering. The feds laid out in their indictment that Madigan and his longtime confidant, Michael McLean, worked together to orchestrate an alleged bribery scheme that benefited Madigan uh, in terms of his own personal business, uh, Madigan and Gertzen Banner, which is his, his law firm that handles real estate taxes, as well as his office as uh, the former Speaker of the Illinois House. It also accused him of illegally soliciting business for that, that law firm and kind of bending people's arms or, or uh, really getting involved in a pay-to-play scheme that benefited him. So much so that the Fed took to calling it the Madigan Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Along with that indictment, they also uh, the Fed included a forfeiture allegation against both Madigan and McLean, seeking two point eight million dollars that they say both men got through ill-gotten gains of you know bending arms and uh, forcing people to to play the game in a way that benefited them wholly. Wow! And and then can you break down some of the specific charges for us? As Rachel said, there are twenty two counts in the indictment. They really fall largely into two buckets, and the first of those is ones having to deal with Commonwealth Edison and Madigan's allegedly assisting them advancing their uh, their agenda in the legislature in exchange for um, favorable treatment for people with close contacts to him, things like contracts for legal work or contracts to do consulting with little or actual, no actual work performed. Um, you know, he 
through Mike McLean allegedly got involved in things like how many billable hours a law firm run by a lobbyist named Victor Reyes was going to get from ComEd. They were arranging payments allegedly for former Alderman Mike Zaleski. Mm-hmm. Um, they were allegedly scheming for a position on a paid position on Commonwealth Edison's board of directors for Juan Ochoa, who's the former member of the Metropolitan Peer and Exposition Authority Board. There were even payments allegedly arranged to Kevin Quinn, the brother of Alderman Marty Quinn, who had been ousted from Madigan's political organization over sexual harassment allegations. And the list goes on there. But the other uh, aspect, as, as Rachel mentioned, was the speaker tying allegedly legislative action to things that would bring business to his property tax appeals law firm, most notably a deal involving a state-owned parcel in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And um, former alderman Danny Solis, who was wearing a wire for the feds, brought a developer to Madigan to possibly represent. And they were looking to have the state transfer this piece of land to the city so the city could then sell it to the developer. And the allegation is that Madigan's firm would then make money off of representing the developer in property tax appeals on that property. And just so we're clear, where are we with the corruption charges connected to ComEd? So ComEd has, uh, for its part, entered a deferred prosecution agreement with federal prosecutors, and that came out in the summer of 2020, which is part of the reason that a lot of what is in the indictment of Madigan himself is not too too surprising or revelatory for people because, you know, ComEd has, has admitted to this conduct. And up until this point, and currently still, the Speaker has denied doing anything wrong. And I shouldn't say the speaker anymore. He's not the speaker anymore. Mr. Madigan has denied doing anything wrong and has um, maintained that, you know, he had no knowledge of of any of this conduct on ComEd's part. Mm. Well, uh, Madigan was uh, also a property tax attorney. What is U.S. Attorney John Lausch saying that Madigan improperly did? Right. So essentially what they're saying is that he was tying official action in the legislature in Springfield to generate business for his firm. They allege that, you know, Solis, for example, in the Chinatown case brought a developer to him as a potential client and that they then tried to pull the levers down in Springfield for action that would benefit the developer who was looking to use his legal services and pay him for those legal services. In the 106-page indictment, the government referred to the, quote, Madigan Enterprise, of which Madigan was the leader. Uh, Why use the word enterprise, Rachel? racketeering charges. Uh, Racketeering itself typically has to do with uh, organized crime. (laughs) And so uh, by using racketeering, I believe the feds are are trying to paint a case that that shows that Madigan really organized an an enterprise, a a situation, a a system in which he benefited personally, financially, his, his his associates benefited in the same ways by, you know, extorting people, bribing people, attempting to extort people, kind of the same things that one would see uh, in dealing with uh, the mafia or other uh, criminal enterprises like those. And so I think what the feds are trying to say here is that what behind the scenes, what Madigan was doing is basically the same as or very similar to what organized crime, uh, organized criminals, I don't know how to put that, what they do and, and what we've seen previously. Do you have any thoughts, Rachel, on, on why it took so long to bring these charges? My sense is that if you're going to go for Madigan, you better not miss. 
And so I think that they really wanted to make sure that they had a solid case. I think some of it could also be maybe waiting to see if they could get other people to cooperate. I don't know that anybody would have worn a wire on him. It seems like his inner circle is very tight, very loyal to him. But I think maybe the feds wanted to do as much due diligence as possible to, to really have a good case when this goes to trial. What's Madigan's response been, Dan? He has continued to deny that he has done anything wrong. You know, he he admits to making job recommendations and things like that, but he says that that's all, you know, above board conduct, constituent service sort of work, things that would be expected from from somebody who's an elected state representative. And so, you know, they continue to fight the charges. And I think one of the interesting things about the indictment is that um, Michael Madigan is not the only person named in it. It's also brought against Michael McLean, who is a former legislator, former comment lobbyist, longtime close confidant of Madigan. And he's already facing separate criminal charges related to the comment bribery scheme. Mm-hmm. And so my colleague, Jason Meisner, who, who covers federal courts, has um, pointed out that this really could be an effort to squeeze McLean to get more cooperation from him in prosecuting Madigan. Now, something else that we learned is that J.B. Pritzker was interviewed by federal investigators last week. Let's listen. I was asked to be a witness and that um, they wanted to talk about any interactions. um, And I was happy to cooperate and answer any and all of their questions. None of the interactions that I had were uh, anything other than about, you know, things to do with doing the right thing in government for the people. Dan, might the governor have added anything to the Fed's case against Madigan? It sounds like really what they were looking for was just, um, and it, we've you know heard that there have been other other figures in state government, lawmakers and such, who have gone before the grand jury to, to to talk about these kind of things. But just sort of a picture of how things worked in Springfield, what it was like dealing with Madigan, sort of how he operated. The governor's office says that it was a you know virtual meeting that lasted about an hour. The governor answered all the questions that that the federal investigators had for him and agreed to answer, you know, more if they had them. So, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, an hour long interview is not a huge part of a many years long investigation, but also not a great thing, even if it's voluntary for the governor to have to to talk about in the year that he's seeking reelection. Well, though the uh, federal prosecutor made it clear that there are no allegations against the governor, is is Madigan's indictment going to be used against the Pritzker uh, against Pritzker in the uh, upcoming campaign. What do you think? Oh, I would yes, absolutely. I think Republicans, you know, within, you know, a couple hours of of the indictment being released, even maybe less time than that, were already making that case. You saw House Republican leader Jim Durkin mm-hmm. saying, you know, that the responsibility for this goes to the top, goes to Governor Pritzker who who campaigned and was elected with Madigan's support and backing. So you know, it is really going to be a weight that the Republicans are going to be trying very hard this year to to hang around the neck, not just of Pritzker, but of every every Democratic candidate up and down the ballot. What do you think, Rachel? Definitely. Yeah, I would uh, echo basically everything that Dan just said. I, I think, you know, we've seen in recent years that Republicans have tied successfully Madigan to Democrats. Um, they used Madigan and successfully defeated the proposed move to a graduated income tax. Justice Kilbride was, uh, I believe, the first state Supreme Court justice to not receive retention because uh, they, they linked him to Madigan, whether or not that was correct or not. I mean, you can ask 
uh, or you can guess or wonder. So I, I think that we're just going to continue to see this. And mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, Governor Pritzker is not named but mentioned in this indictment, even though feds, the feds are saying, hey, the, the governor didn't do anything wrong. His name is, you know, just in this because of, you know, yeah. Madigan's enterprise. I, I think we'll continue to see that as the election season goes on. Well, Dan, you mentioned Jim Durkin a moment ago. Let's hear from what the Republican House leader had to say. Today may be the darkest day in Illinois government history. This is not just an indictment against Michael Madigan, but it's an indictment against the Democrat Party of Illinois that he ran for decades. Why don't you pick up where you left off, Rachel? How damaging is this indictment for, for Illinois' Democratic Party? That's a good question. Since Madigan was already out of office, he left his post at the Democratic Party of Illinois. You know, the the new heads of current Speaker uh, Emmanuel Chris Welch, current head of the Democratic Party, Robin Kelly, Representative Robin Kelly, they've both, you know, come in and said it's a new dawn, it's a new day. I I think, obviously, people's actions uh, speak louder than their words. You know, it depends on who you ask in the state legislature whether or not things have really changed. But I would say, for the most part, things have. I think now the Democrats mission or goal should be to convince voters that things have changed and that even though, you know, Madigan was in charge for such a long time, the party is not connected to him. It it has, you know, charted a new course. It is not a party of corruption. And I think if they can convince voters that that is the case, I think that they'll still get votes. I also think, you know, in Illinois, especially in Chicago and Cook County, Democrats tend to sweep things. They, they tend to do well in elections. I'll, I'll be curious to see. Obviously, this is a midterm. The midterm election is never very good for the president's party. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be curious to see how Republicans, you know, use this in their messaging and, you know, the outcome. But I would say it's kind of a mixed bag uh, to me as to how this will affect the election, this specific issue. I, I think that there are many issues right now for, for Democrats to overcome. And I think this is maybe top five, but I don't know that I'd say that it's number one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about how different people have reacted to the news of of Madigan's indictment, starting with Mayor Lightfoot. Do either of you know what her reaction was? What was interesting, she was at University of Illinois at Chicago with uh, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Governor Pritzker when news of the indictment broke before she had even seen it. And she had a pretty interesting take as a former federal prosecutor, which was similar to what Rachel said earlier, which is that, you know, if you're going to bring this case, if you're going to take this shot, you want to make sure you're not going to miss. She didn't have to deal uh, a ton with Madigan in her official capacity, but he has sort of, you know, there was obviously legislative goals that she had down in Springfield, but um, their overlap was was not extensive in terms of the time she was in public office. But, you know, he he loomed over Democratic politics in the state for, for 40 years. He was in Springfield for 50 years. So, you couldn't really escape his shadow. What about Democrats who led the charge to get him out, like Representative Kelly Cassidy? Are they feeling vindicated, would you say? I think they are. And I think that's why you you saw them come out in the, um, you know, the blue room down in Springfield and have, have a news conference after the indictment came out. They want to make sure that voters know, I think, speaking to what Rachel was talking about earlier, their sort of New Day message and that they were really the ones, as much as Republicans want to take credit, who, who dethroned Madigan and made it so that he didn't have the support within his own party that he needed to become speaker for another term. The question, I think, on, on Republicans' minds and, and maybe some voters' minds is whether that was too little too late yeah. if he was enabled for too long before they finally stood up. If uh, Madigan is found guilty, make it clear, Dan, is he looking at prison time? Um, yes, I think, it, you know, 
there are some counts that carry up to, I believe, a maximum sentence of 20 years. So, And that's just individual counts, so he could face long potential sentences. Rachel, I think a lot of folks are still stunned that Chicago continues to have corrupt politicians, despite so many of them getting in trouble throughout the history, right? Do you think that this yeah. is the indictment that finally brings an end to the Chicago way of politics? I don't think so. Um, I think that corruption runs deep. Um, and I think, you know, some people will look for ways to line their own pockets or their friends' pockets. I do hope that this gives those people some pause. Um, I hope that this makes them think twice about doing that. And I hope that, you know, because of this, maybe we don't see as many of these cases. Maybe we don't have several members of the city council, you know, indicted or House speakers uh, facing charges or awaiting charges. But I, I don't I don't know that this will end corruption uh, forever. Dan, what do you think about what this means for public trust in state government? You know, it's, it's hard to say because so much of what is um, in the indictment was already suspected. So I don't know. You know, it's it's definitely different when you look at a piece of paper that says the United States of America versus Michael J. Madigan on it. But I think people in general have, have a pretty low opinion of, of state government in Illinois to begin with. So I don't know how much more this lowers it. I think the question is how Springfield responds if we see any more attempts at ethics reform, which they've always done a pretty weak job of responding with. I mean, even if, you know, when former Governor Bogoyevich was uh, impeached and removed from office and then went to prison, his, you know, the legislative response to those allegations was pretty weak. So, you know, I think it's going to take a real effort from folks down in Springfield to, to restore that trust. That's just one of the top stories this week, but there's plenty more news to get to in the second half of the recap, including these stories. Dr. Ngozi Ezeke said today that on March the 14th, she will step aside as director of the Illinois Department of Public Health. A pivotal decision in the race for Chicago's next mayor. Former Education Secretary Arne Duncan says he will not run. CPS CEO Pedro Martinez suggested the time to make masks optional is close at hand. For most of the public indoor spaces across the state of Illinois, with a few exceptions, mask mandates and proof of vaccination, no longer required. Dan, let's get into what feels like good news on the COVID front. As case numbers continue to plunge, the city and state lifted mask and vaccine mandates. Did that basically leave it up to businesses and individuals to decide for themselves what to do here? It did, yes. And this is something that we knew for a couple weeks was coming and then got a late um, backstop from the CDC when they released new guidelines a week ago basically letting much of the country go go maskless indoors. They kind of re, rejiggered their, their metrics for all of this to look more at hospitalizations and hospital capacity, um, still looking at cases somewhat, but sort of um, making that secondary to making sure that the healthcare system isn't overwhelmed with COVID patients. And we're now down, based on the CDC guidance, to just six counties in Southern Illinois, where the CDC says people should still be wearing masks indoors. But it's really just a dramatic shift over the last couple of months from the peak we saw in, in mid-January. Yeah. Well, what did businesses do, most of them? Are, are restaurants lifting those mask mandates? Some are. You know, it really varies. You know, there are some in the city, I think, in particular that are deciding to, to stick with them for now. But by and large, I think, you know, across the state, most people are um, 
letting them go. You know, it was a surprise on on Monday when when the governor actually issued the executive order that lifted the mask mandate that he even included daycare centers, which was a place that they had said earlier in the month they were going to continue requiring masks. So it's really right. sort of this pivotal moment in in the pandemic. You know, one thing I'm going to be watching is over the next few weeks, we've seen in the past when restrictions get loosened up a little bit, eventually cases and then hospitalizations and then deaths start to rise again. And the question is, is that going to happen in a significant way? Or are we really at a point now where this sort of fades more into the background of, of daily life? And as those mask and vaccine mandates were lifted, Illinois' top doctor announced it was time to step down. What reason did Dr. Ngozi Azike give for why she's leaving her post as a public health director? You know, it really just it sounded like it came down to the the amount of stress that it has placed on on her and her family over the past two years, uh, really being the key advisor to the governor on on dealing with this and the endless days and nights of meetings and phone calls. And, and um, I'm sure a lot of the, the public scrutiny and, and attention that she got in what is usually, you know, sort of a little noticed bureaucratic kind of job in pre-pandemic times has weighed on her. Yeah. Now, I see other outlets reporting today that uh, I believe, including WBEZ, that she has a job offer from one of the city's big safety net hospitals to come take over. I'm not sure whether that's going to happen or not, but yeah. well, we'll you know, watch that with interest. To your point, Dan, and the public health director is typically a pretty low-profile job, but of course it hasn't been in the last two years. Rachel, how do you think she'll be remembered for her role during the pandemic? I think she'll be remembered as a, a calm presence and calming presence, one who knew the facts, knew the data, but was still personable. And I, I believe, you know, her giving her remarks as well in Spanish really helped educate people. Uh, and and I, I think that that impact uh, will be lasting. Some of the people I've spoken to since her announcement have said that they hope that the next person is also fluent in Spanish or, you know, other languages, too, to make sure that people in the city and in the state, you know, who, for whom English is not their first language, understand what's going on. And, and of course, there are uh, media outlets that do provide stories in Spanish or other languages, but it was nice seeing her end her or conclude her remarks in English and then immediately switch to the Spanish to make sure that everybody everybody was included. Mm-hmm. Dan, a lot of mixed and and passionate feelings among parents over these uh, school mask mandates. Now, the head of Chicago Public Schools is saying that the district may soon make masks optional. What reason did CEO Pedro Martinez give for changing the policy? They're seeing and citing a lot of the same data that that the governor did in ending his mandate and that the CDC has been citing, just the fact that... um, Cases are really dropping. Hospitalizations are really dropping. Uh, we might be reaching a point where enough people either have immunity either from vaccines or from recent infections that the risk isn't as great. I mean, I think the big question is going to be how they can negotiate that with with Chicago Teachers Union after the the work stoppage we saw earlier this year over these issues. So, you know, that's going to be uh, interesting to see how they navigate. Yeah. Rachel, CPS is also dealing with another issue. They're short about 5,000 people to run for local school council seats. Why is the district having such a hard time finding folks who are willing to do this? I think some of that reason is burnout. People have a lot on their plates already. I think with working from home, you know, parents trying to also teach from home or make sure that their child is engaged with Zoom uh, or virtual learning. So I think that 
people may not want to add more to their, their plate right now. I think a lot of people are exhausted both from their job and, you know, the home job. I don't think that they really think that this is a, a good thing to add to their plate. I think also uh, in terms of participation with, you know, local school council elections, that's been going down anyways. I believe over the, the past decade, it's uh, they've seen a decrease of 43 percent, um, especially since the 2018 election. Um, so I think maybe people are also questioning if this is important. Maybe they don't see that it is. And so they, they question whether or not they want to give their time to that right now. I see. But despite this, CPS is extending the deadline to run for local school councils to next week, next Wednesday. Is that right? I believe so, yes. Uh, I want to stick with you for a moment, Rachel, and uh, talk about CPS CEO or former CPS CEO and Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, who's announced that he won't be running for mayor. How big of a relief is that, you think, for Lori Lightfoot? I'm sure she breathed a, a sigh of relief, but I uh, would caution her to not get too comfortable with Duncan getting out of this race or choosing not to step into it. He leaves a pretty big hole to be filled by uh, who knows. At least Arnie Duncan is, you know, quote unquote, the devil she knows. At, at least his name is out there. He's talked publicly about mm-hmm. it. Now she may have to worry about the people who are behind the scenes trying to rally support from business leaders who may be displeased with how she, uh, you know, has handled either the pandemic or who are unhappy with other things in her tenure. So I, I would I would say she shouldn't get too comfortable. There are already some people eyeing her spot. She still hasn't formally announced that she'll run for re-election, but, but she's expected to seek a second term, right? Correct, yeah. Uh, she's already sending fundraising emails uh, related to, to COVID decisions, related to ending the mask mandate in the city. Uh, so I, I would expect for her to seek a second term. I think that this is just posturing right now. She has a lot of things on her plate, a lot of crises to deal with, to juggle. Yeah. So I, I don't think that maybe right now is the right time to announce that. All right, here's another one of those crises, Dan. Lori Lightfoot was in the news this week over a lawsuit involving a Columbus statue. Bring us up to speed. Sure. This was the um, Columbus statue that was removed uh, after some unrest, I believe, back in in 2020. And there had been a deal apparently between the Chicago Park District and a uh, an Italian American group to display the statue during a, their annual parade. Lightfoot found out about it and stepped in and allegedly, according to a lawsuit that was filed, berated a, a former. Park District Attorney in, in very crass terms that I don't think I can say on the air without no, not. <laughs> getting the FCC uh, involved. But, let's not. Um, um, you know, this is just, I think, further evidence of sort of, you know, bare knuckle style she uh, uses in, in dealing with people privately. Yeah. Rachel, a watchdog for the city of Chicago is also saying uh, it's found evidence of police bias in who the department stops and uh, its use of force. What did the report from the IG's office say? It found that black Chicagoans were overwhelmingly or disproportionately stopped by Chicago police officers. When a police stop occurs and results in an officer using force in 83.4% of those incidents, that involves a black person, a black Chicagoan. They found similarly high statistics for uh, investigatory stops, um, especially in the New North Police District, which includes the Loop and Michigan Avenue shopping districts. For all of those stops, 73.5% of them included a black resident, whereas black people make up only 7.9% of the population in that area. I, I think that this, you know, uh, goes back to the fact that the, the police department is under a consent decree, I, I believe, since 2018, 2019. And 
I, they've been slow uh, or slow walking uh, reforms. So this IG report, I think, adds more fuel to that fire for the, the need for reform. And I could see uh, community activists and, and others who watch the police department calling for that now, pointing to this report. How's the CPD responding? I believe the response has been to push back and, and to say that, you know, they are making the reforms. This this does not necessarily um, describe them as a whole or describe their department as a whole. But I, I believe right now uh, they're kind of taking a hands-off approach to this report. I believe even the mayor, you know, when asked for comment on this, I, I don't believe that she immediately commented on it. I, I'm still waiting to see what her response is on that. That's all for today's Reset. For more conversations that go behind the headlines and bring you context to the local news of the day, subscribe to this podcast. We bring you a new episode every weekday afternoon. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.